there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. The National Young Writers Festival is really unique because we're all young people creating and curating for other young people. We wanted this festival to be interactive. We wanted people to happen across other people that they maybe had never met before, never thought to meet before, and that's sort of the playfulness of it. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the National Young Writers Festival, supported by Writing New South Wales and Create New South Wales, with Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. I have a background in performance poetry as well as young people's theatre, so I'm really interested in new works and experimental works, but also stuff that reflects and responds to the lives of the people making it. So um, I think I'm probably in the right place to see some exciting art. This session is between memory and now. Just a quick warning, this session does contain content about a woman who has been murdered and sexual violence. If that is a trigger for you, or anything comes up for you as a result of this episode, please do contact 1800RESPECT or Lifeline. We have provided the numbers for both of those in the show notes. And I do suggest you have a packet of tissues handy because some of these readings are deeply moving and also beautiful. The artists have been incredibly generous. I hope you appreciate them as much as we did. This reading is Between Memory and Now, um, which comes from a piece of Jamie Marina Lau's. Jamie's going to read a bit later. So we're really grateful to Jamie for lending us her words for the title um, of this reading. Um, First up, we have Adalia Nash Hussein. Adalia writes and edits nonfiction. Her work has appeared in Voiceworks, The Lifted Brow and Going Down Swinging. She's been one of EWF's MRC Writers in Residence and a Wheeler Centre, Next Big Thing. I'd like you to um, give Adalia a really welcoming stage. She's going to read something that's really important to her. Hey, um, yeah, just before I start, I just want to um, acknowledge the Awabakal and Waramai people that are the owners of the land that we're meeting on today. Um, and I also would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, um, which is where this piece um, is was written and is inextricably linked to. Um, colonisation is an ongoing process, and as a settler, that's something that I think about a lot, and I don't know, it's important. Um, also, just a content warning, this piece um, is about grief and sexual violence. Um, if that's something that you need to take leave from, that's all good. Um, And I hope you look after yourself. Um, Okay, this piece is called Park. Our school didn't have an oval, it had a park. The park was bordered by a cemetery, a tram line, a uni and a 7-Eleven. Strictly speaking, we weren't allowed to use the whole thing, although most of us did. Our boundaries were between a footpath that connected to the northern edge of our school and a footpath that led to a playground on our south. In the centre of the park was a football stadium and sometimes we would see players driving around it in golf carts preparing for training. Games weren't held there anymore. During lunch, cooler students would smoke and get high and teachers would mostly pretend not to notice. More rebellious students would venture into the cemetery to do this. 
I'm not sure if it was for privacy or the atmosphere. We went through stages of thinking we might be photographers, so we take photos of each other with disposable cameras from Kmart. They came in packs of four, bright colours, $20. Our school's building had won Brutalist Architecture Awards and clashed with our toy aesthetic, so our photos were mostly taken in the park. I started at the school in year nine, and it took me maybe a year to find friends I felt comfortable with. Before I moved, I'd imagined reconstructing myself as some kind of manic pixie triple-double threat. Singing, drawing, sewing, acting, writing, and I chose my electives accordingly. The only class I had with her was drama, which, to be honest, had been considered a lot cooler at my old school. We were performing an adaption of The Wind in the Willows, and we both auditioned for lead roles. I was ready for the limelight, or at least some limelight. I wanted to be Toad and ended up ratty. She wanted to be Badger, and she was. There were two casts, and on the off nights, we'd pick up smaller roles. I cued the music, iron and wine and karaoke versions of ballroom blitz, and she guided the audience to their seats, the whole time in character as a sweet woodland bunny. In our last week of school, we had five dress-up days, which never made sense to me since we didn't have a uniform in the first place. The Friday was decade-themed, no particular decade, and the teachers had organised a barbecue in the park to stop us from vandalising the school. On Thursday afternoon, I picked up a new pair of glasses from my optometrists, and on Thursday night, I raided my mum's wardrobe, digging out a vaguely 80s white-structured blazer. On the Friday morning, I carefully applied blush that curved from my cheeks to my forehead, and as dramatic an eyeshadow look as I could manage with a palette of matte creams and browns. I brushed my hair into a high ponytail and tied it with a ribbon. My new glasses frames were, as they have always been, only a minor variation on my last pair. Black or tortoise shell, square with somewhat rounded edges, but I like the way that they changed my face. At the barbecue, hardly anyone notices them. They're so different, I protest. I just thought they were a part of your costume. One person does notice, says my new glasses are nice. She compliments the blazer. She does not realise I'm in a costume. I laugh, faux offended. Is this how I normally dress? She pauses. Well, you look very thought out. And you always look very thought out. You know what I mean? I don't really know how to respond to this. I compliment her hair. Thanks. I actually washed it. I think back on this conversation a lot. There are photos of it. Even though we go to different unis, I see her around all the time. She lives nearby, near the park, so she studies at the Bailey, sits on South Lawn reading. I recognise her from miles off. She has a distinctive way of holding her body and moving through space. Every so often we catch up deliberately. Usually it's me and her and my friend Grace. Grace instigates it. We all say we'd like to catch up, but Grace is always the one to make it concrete, to send the message or to make me send the message because she doesn't really like sending messages. The last time we all meet up for coffee, she arrives nearly two hours late, despite living a ten-minute walk away. Grace and I eat our lunch, and then eat some cake, and then order juices, periodically checking to see if she's replied to our messages. Hey, is everything okay? Are you still coming? When she finally arrives, we're relieved. She'd stayed at her boyfriend's the night before, so she had to take a bus across town, and the bus broke down, and her phone wasn't charged, so she couldn't figure out an alternative route to the cafe, and she also couldn't message us. She takes a sip of her coffee. It's so good to have coffee with milk. Our fridge has been broken for weeks. I first read about it on Twitter, although at the time I don't know what I'm reading. 
I'm lying in bed, scrolling through social media to wake up, using the light from my phone to accustom my eyes to being open. Stop telling us to be careful walking in parks or at night and tell men to stop perpetrating violence. Some of the tweets are accompanied by images, police officers and tents in the park, in our park. That something like this could happen so close is not a shock. It's no longer a shock. I swear to God, I will take a big lactosey shit in the mouths of those who keep blaming women for walking alone at night rather than educating men not to rape and kill women. I open a couple of news sites looking for more information and I don't find it, or I get distracted before I find it. I get up and leave the house. Of course I am upset and I am angry, and of course I agree with the tweets, but as I go about my day, I don't think much of it. I moved out of home about a year ago, and the way my mum texts me has changed, become less logistical. I semi-regularly receive contextless, not-quite reactions to current events and have to Google to find out what she's talking about, usually a terrorist attack. Wow, that's a sudden back down. Stay clear of the CBD for the moment, yeah? Syria. As I walk up the steps to the State Library, I receive another. Hey there, didn't you go to school with Eurydice Dixon? I think I know what it means, although I try to imagine where my mum might have run into her, maybe on campus or at the supermarket. I imagine them talking and it's funny. My mum is medically bad at recognising people and makes all kinds of wild guesses to avoid admitting she knows nothing about you. Eurydice would find that funny, would have said something funny about it, would say something funny about it. I continue walking into the library and search for a table as I scan news sites to confirm what I'm pretending not to know. I sit down and take my laptop out of my bag, plug it in, open my notebook. Almost immediately I stand and pack up again. I am walking towards the exit and then I am walking towards bathrooms and then I am turning back to the exits and leaving the building. I wonder if Grace knows and I open Facebook Messenger, consider how to tell her what to tell her. I stand near a building where I know one of my friends works and I think about going in. My phone is buzzing and it's Grace and I'd forgotten it was possible to call people. When I speak, I realise I am sobbing. We walk towards each other through the city, like a couple at the climax of a romantic comedy, and as we hug, I feel strangely public, like everybody walking past us must think, oh, they've just found out their friend was the woman murdered in Prince's Park. We go to my house, which is closer to the park. Grace wants to leave flowers. I have a bunch at home already, and I consider taking them, or maybe I'm joking. They've been lying on the table without water for weeks, but the blossoms were small and bright, so you couldn't really tell. Grace had heard about the death in Prince's Park almost a full 24 hours before I did, before Eurydice's name was released. Grace had opened Facebook Messenger to check how recently all her friends had been online. I nearly messaged her, but then I remembered that time at the cafe and I felt like she'd hate that, you know? Eurydice is just the sort of person who wouldn't go on her phone for two days. We go to that 24-hour flower shop on Ligon Street that everyone's always said is a drug front. I tell Grace, I get why it's 24 hours now. It's because of grief. And we kind of laugh. The next week, Vice reports that the shop was, in fact, a drug front. We spend a while evaluating the flowers, and we eventually choose some dark orange ones. They seem like a colour palette. There are already a few flowers, but there are not many. 
Somebody has separated the stems from their bouquet and has arranged them into a love heart that the other bouquets have begun to outline. We add ours to the top right on a slight angle. When I go home, I go through Facebook and old emails looking for photos I have of her. There's one I'm looking for from that last day of school where we're sitting in the park, in that same part of the park. All of the photos I have of her are in the park. A Facebook group originally created to organise Year 12 jumpers becomes active after five years. Hey everyone, what a bloody sad day. Hope everyone is looking after themselves. I've called the school and they'll let us know if anything is being organised by the Princess Hill Secondary community. I find myself thinking in spirals, responding with anger to professions of grief, then anger with myself for the anger, the possessiveness. What right do I have? What right do they have? I continually de- and re-legitimise our relationship, the relationships you had to most of our class, the possibility that they might grieve regardless. I'm not really the kind of person who writes Facebook posts to or about the deceased, but my newsfeed is so flooded with her that it feels like I have to. I find the photo from the park and I post it privately, a private version of my friend. Eurydice was kind, funny and fiercely herself. Everything about this feels so profoundly wrong. If you would like to do something concrete in her memory, there is a GoFundMe for her family. Half an hour after I make the post, somebody asks me to make it public so they can share it. I pretend not to have seen it, but then other people ask and I eventually do. Eurydice's family make the photo her profile picture and I'm glad. I've only ever met her dad and her brother in passing and I've only ever heard about her sister. I'm glad that we share this person. A lot of women will feel the death of Eurydice Dixon personally, not because we know her, but because her murder is the summation of fears we govern our everyday lives by every single day. There's something sadly poetic that her name was Eurydice. Please rest well, sweet woman. I'm so sorry it happened like this to you. Strangers or not, we're all thinking of you and your loved ones today, tonight, forever. I can't stop looking at her photo, wondering if she was high from her gig that night, what she was using her walk home to think slash scheme slash dream about. Deepest condolences to all those whose hearts are broken. Vale Eurydice. Love heart emoji. I wish the photo could stay mine or ours or her friends and families, but it obviously doesn't. It is attached to news stories. The loss of Eurydice Dixon. Eurydice Dixon, poignant message addressing violence against women, resurfaces. Eurydice's tragic family past. Eurydice Dixon, violent end to young life, shaped by tragedy, torment. I don't even know how to say her name anymore because now everyone knows what it means or thinks that they know what it means. The mother of a boy I've tutored invites me to a vigil on Facebook, a vigil in the park, reclaim Prince's Park. I'm not sure if I'll go, I tell Grace. I don't think it's really for us. Hey guys, I was thinking for those of us going to the vigil tomorrow, if we wore our year 12 jumpers to honor Eurydice in unison. In the end, we go, but we don't wear our jumpers. We stop off at Woolies on our way there and buy candles and a lighter, one of those long ones, because the one I use to light my stove is running out anyway. Surrounded by all these other people, I wonder why they're here. I wonder what they feel. I wonder how this place feels to them, how it is synonymous with her, how it is synonymous with how she died.
Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing that, Adalia. Um, next up, we have Alex Hollis. I'm going to let everyone introduce themselves from now on, like I said I would at the start. Thank you, Adalia. That was really beautiful. Um, oh, no. I have to follow that. <laughs> it's okay. So I have two things. Um, one is... Uh, you know, one is like a poem and the other one is a very dumb thing. So I think I'll read the poem first and to just like slowly transition into the very dumb thing. Um, I feel like we shouldn't read, like, okay. Um, I think when I think about memory, a lot of what I end up thinking about is place. Um, and so this is a sequence of poems that um, I sort of wrote the different poems that I always meant for it to be a sequence, so I just shoved them together. Um, and um, it's about sort of a trip that I remember from being very young with my parents, but also maybe a couple of different trips. Um, yeah. Uh, it's called Glacier. The composition of water is nothing like rock, but it will stand and pretend to be part of a mountain. From far and away back, on gravel or dirt, the ice was cold on our faces. We had been camping in the morning. At times, the ice will move up to 70 centimetres in a day. The surface will buckle and wave. There are trees around us, or scrub. A grey beach with no sand, thick, round rocks and a grey sky. The sea. All these places blend into one. I remember very little. I know I saw a glacier, how high the mountain was. Blue slips of snow. I remember it was cold. There were people everywhere. It was quiet. The white plumes of our breath crowded as close as we could be, looking up at the ice. We stood at the glacier like slowly aging creatures. This was years ago. Then we retreated, trudging down the path to our car. A bird shrieked into sight, its wings gaping at the tilted sky. At the side of the road, my mother cut her finger on a can of tuna. In certain winter sunshines, the angle being thrown onto the carpet, I remember how to plot out where we stood, the hard sun against gravel, a slow, wide slope down to a body of water. I don't remember blood, although there must have been, and the white sliver of her bone. Running over rocks on the beach, chasing the shadows made from clouds, to a log or a bank, the edge of a stream becoming the sea. We drive for hours and then the hours set themselves as um, shallows to wash around our feet unchanged and night blurs any of the immediate, any of the landmarks I know along this route and I sleep. From the dark, steam sweeps like smoke. I wake to see the paper mill receding in the mirror, its clouds curved away. Waves crash at the shore I am lifted and carried into the house. Landing on water with small disturbance of movement, the plane rocks in the wake of its arrival and skates to the island. What remains? I remember a long jetty, pines rising from the shore as a straight forest, a light rain begins to fall. The dark grey, the curving ice falling around a valley of its creation, 
the wind breaking over the ridge like fine pieces of dirt, the rock dust tumbling down the mountain towards us. In spring, ice melts. I watch it from my kitchen, chopping kumara, boiling water. The pole tilts to the sun. Day is unveiled to fields of ice, snow cover, deep frost. Steam is falling over the pot, glancing out into the room. Water drips, ice cracks, screeches, grinds. Like sound, it takes time for the water to reach them. The sea has met the edge of the glacier. Boats gather. At the cliff face, fissures develop. A block of ice falls on the water, is almost submerged in the waves. From the boats, voices exclaim. After the ice has left, the side of the mountain is dry and thirstless, rocks broken into gullies, where land moved like water as it coursed rapidly down to sea, rising and swelling into summer, letting loose icebergs and flocks of migrating birds, the fish at the top of the water picked off and pummeled in waves, as if the sand won't be made dark and sodden where water washes above it. Um, okay. I realized I didn't introduce myself. Like, I was, like, halfway through reading that, and I was like, I didn't introduce myself. Um, so, hi, I'm Alex. Um, I, uh, I'm from Wellington, New Zealand. Um, great to be here. This is about... Um, this is so dumb, you guys. Um, <laughs> um, this is called A Brief History of Lambton Quay. Lambton Quay is a street in Wellington um, where all the shops are. So imagine like Hunter Street, but just like slightly posher and like there's only one street. Like it's just like that's the thing. Okay. Um, brief History of Lambton Quay. Rod and Gun used to be Pasco's the jeweler. Pascoe's The Jeweler used to be Dimmick's Books. Uh, Stuart Dawson used to be Crabtree and Evelyn. Crabtree and Evelyn used to be a shoe store. No, not Mr. Shoes. Not I Love Paris. It's across the road from there by the Vodafone store. The Vodafone store used to be City Chic. The Glasson store used to be a Wickles. The Maru used to be Supre. Countdown Metro used to be Just Jeans. And I feel very uncomfortable buying apples in the same building that I bought a cheeky monkey two-in-one layered shirt aged 10. And I don't know how to express that to anyone working at the Countdown Metro. The flight centre used to be an equip. The Lululemon used to be a Glassons. Mi Piace used to be a CD store. CD stores used to sell CDs. CDs used to play music. Music is like what happens at the beginning and end of podcasts. <laughs> the Wickles used to be a Borders. Borders used to be Wickles. Forever New used to be Bed Bath & Beyond. The Hannah's Shoes has always been a Hannah's Shoes. Mecca Cosmetica used to be Topshop and Top Men, and Top Men was on the top. Uh, before Cotton on Body was Cotton on Body, the space was a spinning pink vortex. The Lovisa used to be an equip. Strand bags has always been strand bags. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex. Um, ne next up, we have Niveau. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Niveau Zusen. I don't often get to say my own bio, um, so I am 
uh, a person that has just recently started making fairy furniture, um, which is really fun and very cute um, because there's no such thing as perfection when things are really tiny. Um, so that's an important part of my bio. Um, and, yeah, I like to do really fun, nice things with my friends. Um, I want to say thank you so much to Adalia for sharing that. I think that was really hard um, and really raw. And I also want to say that, like, to any survivors um, who may be here or not here, um, that I believe you um, and that I care and that I'm sorry. Um, yeah. So I'm going to read um, a little reading from the end of my book, and I apologize if you've maybe read it or heard it before, um, but it was the most relevant thing I have written to this theme. Uh, I've had a pretty complicated relationship with gender, which I'm not going to go into too much because I don't want to. Um, and also the long version is in the book, and you can buy it, and that was a plug. Um, and so basically, like, a really kind of a quick, short version of this um, is that I was assigned female at birth, um, and that I came out as a lesbian when I was about 15, and I began some sort of social and medical transition when I was 17, and then I didn't quite anticipate that um, being read as a cis man would actually make me feel really dysphoric as well, um, and that I would maybe always have a really complicated relationship with gender. Uh, and that's when I came out again, because I've made a hobby of coming out as much as possible um, as non-binary, and hopefully that's it for now, but we'll check in about this next year. So um, I wrote this memoir about my identity and growing up in a Jewish community and being trans and what all that kind of means. Um, and I think like navigating my past meant like going back into those people so that I was uh, representing them authentically because the thing about nonfiction is that you can't lie. Um, and I needed to kind of go back into those people in order to be honest uh, and that was really re-traumatizing and really difficult, um, but also a really cathartic process. And I think that's something that trans people aren't really allowed to do is, like, honor who we used to be in different incarnations. I think that we're expected very much to kind of cut ourselves off at our transition point um, and, you know, celebrate our anniversaries based on our testosterone or hormone dates um, and, you know, call our old name our dead name, uh, which is totally fine if that's how you identify, but for me it's really not. Like, it's not my dead name. That person didn't die. I'm still very much here and I'm um, still very cute. And, um, yeah, when I got chest surgery, like, I, I got chest surgery in a hospital that was the same one I was born in, um, and a lot of people were like, oh, wow, like, it's like a rebirth. And I was like, ew, no, it's just, like, the only private hospital in the area. Um, <laughs> And it's not a rebirth because I'm not an infant. I'm, like, 19 years old and, like, life's been really hard up until now and I'd really like you to acknowledge that. Um, so, yeah, so I think, like, kind of going back into those people was a really, like, um, kind of fierce, like, reclamation of my past and a way of being, like, actually, those people were legit too um, and phases are, like, really legit and, and are often weaponized against queer people, but, like, it's okay to go through phases and that's what makes us strong um, and fluid and not, like, static right-wing conservatives. Um, so at the end of my book, after going through all of those things, I decided that I would write a, a fiction piece about um, meeting those people at different stages in my life and going to a party with them and what that would be like. Um, so this is that. Also, just a heads up that I'm going to use my birth name in this. Not my dead name, my birth name. Um, and that is like a gift that I'm offering you in this space. It is definitely not a name that you can use for me ever. Um, and don't ever ask trans people what their birth names were. <sighs> It is impossible to decide what to wear. 
I have no idea how I want to represent myself. I know everyone will be confused to see me as it is. I don't want to wear a dress. I feel awkward about it. I'm not even sure I can handle makeup. I know part of that decision is because I want to show them how successful my transition has been. What a believable man I am capable of disguising myself as. This is not going to be a safe space, even though it will be filled with people I know very intimately. I settle on a pair of black jeans, an eccentric shirt, my leather jacket, and some jewelry. I want to look challenging, to be true to both my masculinity and femininity. I don't want to just make people comfortable, but I'm not in a state to go all out. I put a bit of glitter on. I know it will make me feel better. My lighter necklace dangles against my shirt. I always keep my flame close to me. I drive up to the venue and don't have trouble parking. After all, I'm the only one with a license. I enter the building, and straight away I see six-year-old Liat. His hair is short, but only as short as mum will let it be. He is wearing a dress he has obviously been forced into for the occasion. He looks up at me and smiles and starts chattering about something I can't quite understand. I nod along and laugh. He shows me his new skull ring, and I tell him it's cool. I say that it's okay if he wants to take the dress off. Mum's not here. It's just us. His face lights up and he quickly sheds the dress to reveal bike shorts and a t-shirt with a dragon on it. He tells me he's a boy, and I believe him. He grabs my hand, touches my beard, and gives me a hug. I hold him close and tell him, it's going to be okay. He knows who he is, and no one can tell him otherwise. He squeezes me right back, then runs off in a way he couldn't have if he was still wearing the dress. As I walk further into the room... I notice heads turn. I wonder how many people I have surprised, how many I have impressed, and how many I have disappointed. I happen upon nine-year-old Liat. She stands out among the others around her age. She's um, straightened her hair underneath a train conductor-style hat, is wearing lip gloss, a denim mini skirt, and a shirt that hangs off her shoulder. It's really sexy. I see her staring at other versions of us and wonder who she relates to the most. I wonder if she lusts after the freedom of more masculine Liat's or if she is comfortable in the way she is dressed. Thirteen-year-old Liat comes up to me and says, You look different. I nod and I'm silent because I'm not sure I can say anything without crying. I don't know if I've disappointed her. She's tried so hard to be a woman and she's doing a great job. I worry I've failed her. I miss her, but I can see how sad she is behind the mascara she has tried to put on. She pulls at her shirt, attempting to cover the size of her stomach as much as she can. She has been looking around to see if she is skinnier than the others. I tell her she is beautiful, always and forever. She is intelligent and powerful, and if she wants to, she will change the world. Although she knows I'm right, she has a hard time believing me. She hasn't yet felt loved and desired in the ways that she will. You are a force to be reckoned with, I tell her. More of you means more space taken up. Your fat is part of your strength, your identity, and your image. Own it and be proud. She starts crying. I'm not sure anyone has told her this yet. As I say the words, I remind myself that they are still applicable. I know she will have a tumultuous time with her body and weight, but... 
I hope these words will make it easier. I am overwhelmed. <laughs> Nothing could have quite prepared me for the emotions I would experience in this space. I feel my heart racing and realize I am probably having an anxiety attack. I'm not sure anything I can say to these people will make a difference. I'm also not certain I am the one with the most wisdom. I sit down beside other Navos and Liats. We fiddle with our phones. Some read over old messages, others plan new ones. We sit in silence. Elsewhere, I would feel awkward in such a silence, as if someone needed to speak soon or it will feel uncomfortable. But there is a deep understanding among us. I can see 17-year-old Navo in the corner of the room, shyly eyeing me. I know he wants to come over but can't. I consider going to him, then realize I can't either. I pretend not to notice him. I find 16-year-old Liat. She is the most sure of herself, and I sit with her a while. She's wearing jeans and a button-up. Her hair is short and curly. She's only recently stopped straightening it. She tells me about her girlfriend and about her dreams for the future. She wants to be a mum, is thinking of being a psychologist, and spends a lot of time writing music. I thought I would have words of wisdom for her, but realize that it is the other way around. She is surer of herself than I think I'll ever be. I listen as she speaks excitedly. She talks of love in the kind of unguarded way I can only imagine. I have been stung too many times to speak that way now. She tells me she likes my beard. I knew she would. I muster up the courage to speak to 17-year-old Navor. He is anxious, awkward, not sure of himself at all. We notice 18-year-old Navor dancing wildly in the center of the dance floor. We don't speak for a while, and I know he has a million questions for me. I tell him he can ask whatever he wants. So... He asked me about testosterone, when I started, how it felt, what changes I experienced first. He looks at my chest, asks if he can touch it and wants to see my scars. He follows with many questions about surgery. When did it happen? How was it? Was I frightened? What is it like to not have to bind anymore? He touches my chest hair and my stomach hair. He can't believe his eyes. He tells me it's as if he is looking into a mirror of self-fulfilling prophecy. He is the one I had wanted to meet the most. He needed to see how proud he is. He looks carefully at every detail of my skin and body. The appreciation he shows is one that I try to remember to show myself later. I try to answer all of his questions. I love him so much, and I'm so grateful for the choices he made. Eventually, he looks up at me, only slightly, as testosterone's not made me much taller, and asks, <clears throat> Well, are you happy? I take a deep breath, smile, and reply, I'm certainly trying. He smiles back and we hug. I go around a corner and see a long hallway. Although I can't see what is behind all of the doors, I know they are insights into my future. I have no idea what versions of me exist behind those doors, what I'm wearing, how I'm feeling, or how I present my gender. I choose not to look into them, as the security in knowing I have a future is enough comfort to me right now. I go over to two-year-old Liat. She is as cute as the photos. I look at her and wonder if I could go back and do things differently. Would I? She looks up at me and smiles. I wouldn't change a thing. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that too, Navo. Um, I'd now like to invite Monica Elia, Elia to the stage. 
the joys of being tall. Um, my name is Monica Elia, which she just said. I'm so sorry for making you self-conscious about the pronunciation of my surname. Um, I'm a writer from Sweatshop. Um, a lot of you guys would have seen Stephen Pham around, so you know, we're peeps. Um, and I'm going to be reading a story um, about my grandmother. My nana knitted rows and rows of black and white Vs. She huddled me into her bedroom where the other grandchildren wouldn't see. She tried to shut the door, but it bounced back from the frame, held open by a plastic bag full of fabric that had been hung over the top corner. Standing between Nana's single bed and the wooden bedside table, I stared at a plastic statue of the Virgin Mary. The only coloured sections were her pink-toned face and the edge of her blue veil. The dark pupils of the statue had been mistakenly stamped, just left of the indentations marked for the eyes. I imagined my grandmother at night, holding the length of her cotton nightgown in her hand, bearing her chicken sausage legs, thick and pale and covered with purple and green veins, her grip dampening the fabric with sweat, as she struggled to bend down onto her swollen knees to thank the statue. Nana's face would tighten as she pulled herself up to stand and begged for her father, Ui Babi, Ui Babi, to lessen the pain. My nana let out a grunting sigh as she stretched her fleshy arm up to the top shelf of the cupboard. I watched the wrinkles smooth out as she reached up, her thick fingers fumbling for the familiar texture of what she had hidden. She smiled as she snatched at something that made a rustling sound. Then she gestured for me to come closer. Her hands were quick untying the knots, a bag in a bag in a bag and then a jumper. It was wide enough to fit two torsos and the sleeves stopped just short of my wrists. Nana had decorated the chest with white wool knitted into a triangle that stopped just above my sharta. I couldn't remember how to say I love you, so instead I told her, it's so hot, and hugged her. Her warm body smelt like kubba and sweat. The wavy hairs sticking out of her bun tickled my neck. When she pulled away, she told me not to kiss her face. Lana shkatlapati, soten. By contrast, my la'a seeped out slow and messy, like tea from the bottom of a cracked mug. I put the jumper back into the plastic bags, tucked them under my t-shirt and walked into the hallway, weaving through my younger cousins. They were lying down with their bare bellies pressed against the kitchen tiles, trying to stay cool. Inside the kitchen was my auntie Susie, who always was left to clean up, her long white arms, elbows deep in soapy water. I didn't wear the jumper until almost a year later, sitting in the lounge room, eating soggy avocado toast with lemon juice and watching Millionaire Matchmaker. I started to feel a little cold and ran to my room. After sniffing the sour tinge of sweat dried into the armpit fibres of three different jumpers, I found the one my nana had made. I pulled it over my head quickly. The wool scratched in my face. Then I walked back to the living room in time to see Tony, the car-selling millionaire, complaining that Debbie didn't let him have her cookie on the first date. The jumper was thick and stiff. I tried to stretch down the sleeves to cover my wrist, but the wool wouldn't shift. I ran my hands along the chest, smoothing down the places where the fabric had buckled, until I noticed a silver thread poking out of the centre of the white triangle. I tried tucking it back into the Vs. A loop of it bounced out a little further down the line. It was thin, and the texture varied from straight to wavy. I tugged on the end, and as the thread pulled out from my chest, I realised it was a long strand of human hair. It was my grandmother's, knitted into the jumper along with the wool. Nana had washed and brushed my hair countless times. This was the first time I'd ever touched hers. 
The hair reminded me of Jordan, my first conversation with Nana after my grandparents and aunt had moved in with us. Nana and I were sitting on plastic footstools in a brown tile bathroom. I was four and she was old. Steam was rising up from the buckets of hot water around us. My dark curls clung to my bare wet shoulders. Her hair was neatly braided, the end long and thin and twisted to keep the plait in place without the need for elastics. It was the same way Baba Jaji had taught me to braid on my Auntie Susie's waist-length ponytail. My nana was dressed in layered white clothes that the moisture had melted into the folds in her arms and stuck to her wide belly. As she washed my hair, she told me about my father and his siblings, 12 children she had bathed all on her own. I didn't completely understand that my father had been a child or had been specifically her child, but I saw how the grown-ups fell quiet when she spoke. She was gentle with my hair, her short square nails more pleasant on my scalp than my mother's pretty long ones. Once my hair was rinsed, she pulled me in close and I could tell she was going to be I could tell she was going to be sharing a secret. Her voice became hushed and her top lip sunk down to cover the gap between her front teeth. She told me that I had to be nice to my auntie Susie because her real mother had died birthing her. I didn't know how a woman gave birth, but the conversation seemed too important for questions. My nana had taken Susie in, raised her as her own. I remember wondering whether Susie knew this secret. It felt big and I was worried the words wouldn't fit in my head and would come spilling out my mouth once I left the bathroom. When she had first moved in, Auntie Susie was given my crib. Baba Jaji was given the kanapa and I was wedged in the middle of my parents' bed. Sleeping between two adults meant less room. My elbows were always bumping against a firm back or digging into a bloated belly. I would pull the sheets over my face to block out the snoring, my nose close to the fabric, breathing in my mother's perfume, opium by Yves Saint Laurent, rich and musky, in and out slowly until the spicy notes tingled in my throat and the hot air made my face sweat. In my dreams, I would kick out, trying to make space only to have my feet tickled into retreat by hairy arms and legs. My father would wake up with bruises and joke that I was playing soccer in my sleep. I quickly discovered the best place to sleep was on the floor next to my grandmother, close to her chest and wrapped in her meaty arms. At night, she smelt like the large rectangular blocks of rose oil soap that came in Hessian bags from Shimal and the orange peels she rubbed on her hands. I fell asleep gently pinching at the loose skin on the inside of her elbow. In the morning, I slipped out and watched Pumpkin Patch on mute, eating gemar and murabba my Baba Jaji had brought in large glass jars from Baghdad. Thick cream, sweet and milky, and homemade apricot jam. The apricots were soft and sticky, glistening orange pieces floating in a smooth golden syrup. I used a large silver spoon to catch and scoop them into the flat bread, covered in cream. I was careful not to ding the spoon on the sides of the glass and wake up one of the sleeping adults. The hair on my arms stuck to my skin with every bite, the sandwich stripped. I never learnt how to fold the end in as neatly as my grandfather. I ate the gemar and murabba sandwiches for two weeks straight until one morning, standing in the kitchen, shirt lifted, holding my grumpy belly in my hands, I announced to the family that I thought the cream was too oily. My nana was the only one not to laugh. The avocado toast was cold now and Millionaire Matchmaker had ended. There was a too loud car ad playing, a big four-wheel making tracks in a muddy road that had been moistened by film, film set sprinklers. I wanted to call my grandmother and tell her everything I remembered, but my Assyrian wasn't good enough for the phone. I needed my hands to speak. I turned the TV off and pulled the jumper up over my belly and up to my face, took a deep breath in. 
but all I could smell was the old musty wool. Up close, I spotted another silver hair poking from the fabric, then another and another. Every stitch was twisted with a hair in place. I felt my arms beginning to itch, my neck growing hot. I pulled the jumper off my body, careful not to let the hair touch my face. I laid it down on the ground, then I laid myself down beside it and tried to remember the Assyrian word for apricot. Mishmish, mishmishe, chocha. Thank you, Monica. Um, now I'd like to invite Nina Belzotto to the stage. Hi, everyone. Um, I've got Alex here as my assistant because it, like, when I'm up on stage, I tend to shake, and if there's someone next to me, like my dear assistant, I shake less. Yay! Um, so my name is Nina Baldotto. I come from Townsville. Is that too loud? No. Okay. I come from Townsville originally. I now live um, on Turrible land in Brisbane um, and I write poetry and memoir uh, and I edit things every now and then. Uh, this year has been a pretty traumatic year for me. Um, a lot's been going on in my family. Too much. And um, I've been keeping a diary, a monthly diary, available online uh, via an online magazine called Scum. So I'm going to read, you, read to you what happened in August. Um, we'll see how it goes. There's a, there's, yeah, it's, it's, it was a time. It was a bit wild, yeah. Okay. Um, the 1st of the 8th, 2018, 7.23pm on the couch. Uh, with an extremely Andy Williams voice, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Um, what time is it? It's time for Survivor to air. Dean and Grace and I are all on all prepped. They're busy, but I've roused them, so we're going to watch the show together like the housemates that we are. Uh, 7.45 p.m. Dean says he doesn't know if he likes the champions versus contenders idea. He thinks it's a bad gimmick. Uh, Grace agrees with him. I say to both of them, give this chick a chance, guys. It could be fun. 8.12pm. The best part about this show is, honestly, the fact that we watch it together, all rugged up on the couch, sitting in each other's sweaty pheromones and swallowing each other's opinions. The third of the eighth, at home, on the couch. Strap yourself in, baby, and meditate for a good month ahead. Uh, my birthday's just been, and the week has been fairly uneventful. Uh, C arrives tomorrow and then we have Liv's hens party and then Ellen arrives and then we have the wedding and then, because everyone's back in town and we haven't been together since 2012, um, Isabel and Ellen have organised a night out. Then we have Isabel's birthday and then the Queensland Poetry Festival. It's going to be a big month. (laughs) 7.13pm. Just got off the phone with C again. Liv's hen's night is going to be fairly low-key. C is wanting to organise some fun games. Fun. (laughs) The 4th of the 8th, uh, 2.23 in the afternoon, waiting for C to pick me up. Running late. Wanted to do my makeup for tonight and got distracted by the 29 different kinds of brown I could put on my eyes (laughs) to make them pop. Christ on a bike. I'm sounding like a beauty guru. Is that my one aim in life? 
also <laughs> going to be running very late. 2.59 p.m., New Farm Park. C and I arrive, she drops me off, and I make my way to the river to find June and Isabel. What an afternoon for it. There are so many people around enjoying the sunshine with their dogs and kids and friends and food and dogs. 4.17 p.m., Isabel says she loves my look today. The eyeshadow worked. <laughs> I brought highlighter with me so we can play around with our makeup before going to Liv's hen's night. Ella and her boyfriend arrive, and we slowly unwind in the afternoon sun. We laze around on the picnic blanket, eating strawberries and talking about the week. This is before the strawberries... <laughs> ...gate. <laughs> C says, I've got a few games for us to play tonight, but want to check in and see if they're corny or if they're good. Um, there's two truths and a lie, and another one that I want to keep a surprise... You won't even tell us, I ask. No, you guys would have an unfair advantage, she says. I just really love weddings, I say. Who else can have a wedding next? Um, I just want to go to some fun parties. Nobody actually has to get married. Ella's just celebrated her parents' 30th wedding anniversary. She says, why do you like weddings so much? I don't know, I say. They just seem like a lot of fun, you know? Everyone's there, everyone who you love, and you're just there to have a good old dance. Well, C says, Liv's wedding is going to be great, and we'll certainly be doing dancing. Seventh of the eighth, two days until Liv's wedding. 1.24pm. C, being a bridesmaid, has many duties. For example, looking great, doing makeup, looking good hair, having good jewellery in the theme of the wedding, which, as far as I can tell, is neutral, chic, on a tight budget. And she also has to be quite reliable, which she is good at. Today, I am a vessel of friendship. I am here for chats and moral support and healing, but not feeling the best, <laughs> not feeling good at all. Brain fuzzy, feeling fluey, throat very sore. Feel like I'm about to faint at any point. Mmm, sounds fun. C and I meet up at Indro, which is a shop, Ing Centre. Um, eat some food and I help her pick out uh, some makeup that she can wear because I'm great at that. Um, in the meantime, she says some accidentally wise things like, you do you, and I love you for who you are. The 9th of the 8th, the big day. 10.08 a.m., just so you're prepared, there's a lot of logistics. We had originally planned, Ellen and Isabel and I, to go together to the ceremony and then make our way up to Wyvernhoe for the reception. But plans have changed. Okay, so we just have to fly on the back of the wind. I'm trying calmness, fun, calmness, fun. Big events always put me in a bit of a tiz because I love the energy of love. I think it's called collective effervescence. 
Liv has been overseas for years and is low on cash and is doing the wedding on a strict budget, or how you say in French, budget, <laughs> which is absolutely glorious to me. Uh, budgets keep my heart throbbing. Um, 12.34 p.m., putting on a nice dress and some nice makeups. Today, I'm going to wear a nice dress and some nice makeup. <laughs> 20 past one in the afternoon, can confirm, looking fresh to death. 4.30, up in the hills somewhere beyond Ipswich, near a dam and surrounded by fields and trees. I can just uh, feel a sing-along <laughs> coming on. <laughs> I don't know if I should do it. Should I do it? Do it. The hills are alive <laughs> with the sound of music. Ah. <laughs> um, with songs they have sung. Isabel hates it when I sing out loud in the context in the middle out of context in the middle of the day <laughs> but this nature is so goddamn beautiful and we're looking great um and love is in the air baby what's there not to celebrate oh god uh, i've got some heavy earrings on we're about to all be in the same room together for the first time in six years uh and Liv has just gotten married to her love What's not to love? 4.35pm oh, in the hall. Oh, dear. In my usual style, I fell up the stairs just now. I guess 100 years ago, when this hall may have been built, um, the builders weren't thinking that I, a woman with cerebral palsy, would want to one day walk up those stairs. <laughs> walk up those stairs without falling down. The hall is stunning. Imagine, if you will, your favourite neutral tones being surrounded by soft lighting and feeling like you're about to feast on the nicest food ever for $23 a head. <laughs> Isabel is mingling. She says, Neen Bean, what are you doing on your phone? This is a reception. Liv will be here soon. I know. I don't look up from my phone. I'm taking notes. Ah, she says, but are you going to do that all night? No, I say. Rude. Yes, she says. Then take some notes and then time to mingle. Okay. 4.48pm. I was really excited. Ellen has arrived! 5.16pm. <laughs> Liv has arrived! She and husband are both holding hands! They look stunning. I'm dying of happiness. <laughs> the 11th of the 8th. That's, that's all I wrote on the night of the wedding. <laughs> the 11th of the 8th, Taratai, Fortitude Valley, 7.01pm. Uh, Very rare that we are all together, seeing that C and Liv only returned from the UK last year, and we all live in different cities now. Liv has gone on honeymoon with her husband, very nice. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us can't get together and boogie down. Apparently, that's what tonight is for. A boogie down. 
Everyone else will be on the source, but me, I will be not on the source, given my proclivity for crying when drunk and given the awful hangover. Great food, check. Great pals, check. 9.01pm, Black Bear Lodge, for those of you who don't know, the only place I go to in the valley. Um, Time for a boogie. I don't care what music is playing as long as I am allowed to dance. 9.04pm, that is a lie. I care very much what music is playing. (laughs) Because I respond well to pleasing sensory stimulus and absolutely hate listening to music if I don't like it. Just being true to myself tonight. Uh, 12th of the 8th, 11am, in bed still. Flirted with a dirt bag last night. His mouth was too big for his face. But I didn't want to hold that against him. And then his friends wanted, them, wanted me to tell them my age. Instead of telling them, which was too easy, I said, how old do you think I am? One of them, who ended up liking me towards the end of the night and not hating me, said, 21. Very pleasing. Also strange for him to be so off, re my age. But who's a woman to blame? I look great. I said, just because I have a cheerful demeanour, that means I have to be young? Um, They did not know how to answer that. And instead of messing with me, they decided that I was their friend too. Uh, I told the married one about the land of tragedy for about 20 minutes. They ended up uh, walking me back to my friends and the big-mouthed one said goodnight, never to be seen again. I didn't get his number. His mouth was too big. 16th of the 8th, 18. Your girl is back on Tinder. Since the weekend episode, Tinder might be preferable... The next day, I told my pals about a date yesterday with a man who was talking about people with disability in a not very nice way. I don't take well to that kind of talk, so when I have the energy and resilience, I spend time with people who make little mistakes using different or hurtful words to help them understand what their words actually mean, like calling people out when you see discrimination, like calling people out when they say something that's a little off, but not really arcing up to it. At least, that's what I try to do. They tell me that they don't really like the sound of this guy and say that maybe I should get rid of him from my Tinder. (laughs) 23rd of August, Queensland Poetry Festival time. Get ready for the big one. Get ready for vital signs which was the title of Queensland Poetry Festival this year. So much goodness coming to Brizzy, this festival. Um, Side note, I'm feeling awful. Don't at me. Um, 24th of August. How do I feel bad? Let me count the ways. One, withdrawing from social activities. Two, hating look of my own face. Three, not able to leave house without crying. Four, Throat has been bleeding for the past two weeks. Five, not feeling hungry, or perhaps feeling hungry, but having lost the capacity to perceive feeling, and therefore not knowing that I am hungry. That was a bad day. 
25th of the 8th, 10.26am, about to leave home wearing jeans. Very comfortable. On the phone to Lagia, talking to her about the date from the other night. She is also against uh, seeing this dude again. But, I say, he has an okay energy. (laughs) An okay energy, she asks. What does that even mean? Um, I don't know, I say. You're not making any sense, she says. Well, I'm not seeing him after today, okay? And then I hung up because I had to go to the Uber. 11.15am in West End, uh, sitting across from the dude. He's nice. He's easygoing. Conversation isn't that hard. I ask him how the Tinder game is going for him. He says it's slow. I say it's not going very well for me. And I probably need some time off, especially from him. He offers to drive me home. Uh, Ten past nine at night, at home on the couch. I watch to all the boys I've loved before and can't stop crying for some reason. I'll put myself to bed soon. 26th of August, last day of Queensland Poetry Festival. 10.04am. I'm running late for my friend's event. I might miss the beginning. And then there's a time lapse, which... I don't write about. Um, Don't know the time, lying on the floor with my handbag and everything kind of thrown around me. To get to my car, no, from my apartment, there are four sets of stairs. The first three set of stairs, I went down without a hitch. The fourth set of stairs, I twisted my ankle, I fell down, I landed on my left side and I think I hit my head. So everything hurts. Um, everything hurts, everything hurts and is a little bit numb, my head hurts, my head hurts, um, what do I do? Grace, my housemate is upstairs, I think to myself, Grace will know because she is a nurse. I sit up, cross my legs, I get my phone out and call her, she comes down the stairs into the hallway near the garage, it's a public space so anyone could pass us at any time. Did you hit your head, she asks. I don't know, maybe. When did you fall? Just now, I think. You're probably not in a fit state to drive. You might have a concussion, she says. 11.14am. On the nurse's orders, I'm not going to QPF until this afternoon because I fell down. I have texted Isabel and let her know. Grace says I need to rest and need to not drive. She says, I'm not allowed to nap, but I want to sleep so badly. Uh, 28th of the 8th, night time. The the column ends on a bit of a bleak note, so I'm sorry about that. We had a a nice wedding, and then we had a bit of uh, a bad time at the end of the month. Um, Night time. Still unbelievably sore from the weekend uh, because I fell down. The bruising is intense, and the physio says... Injury, 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 blah, 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 six weeks, blah. Um, he says I have to wrap myself up in a healthy cocoon while my body heals. On the phone to Lugia, talking about the meaning of life. Um, what, what is the meaning of life? Um, how does one find purpose? What effect does dealing with chronic pain and physical torment have on one's sense of permanency or transcendence?
Uh, Logia didn't uh, have any of the answers, um, and neither did I. Um, so if you want any answers, um, just, just don't at me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Nina. And um, for our last reading, we have Jamie Marina Lau. Please welcome her to the stage. Okay, thank you. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you to everybody on this panel. It's been such an honor to have you share your stories and experiences with us and opening that up to this room. Um, yeah, so I'm going to, I was going to read a nonfiction piece, um, but then I decided I found this fiction piece that I wrote around the time that two very powerful and important women passed away in my life. Um, so I'm going to read this and it's um, important because I think as a fiction writer um, and a novelist, I tend to push away any uh, set like of my reality in my work. So um, it's interesting to me how we navigate our realities through fiction. So I'm just gonna start, it's called Shooting Star. Um, part one. Reruns of Comme des Garçons in New York, 1985, in a white room, The Subterraneans by Jack Kerouac, the song from a popular computer-animated movie from 2001, the photographer that doesn't say anything while shooting his model. That's the whole title. And this is the story. All right. My granny used to tell me how she was trying to be skinny her whole life, and now she's passed away from old age. It was in this hospital with yellow wallpaper and she was comfortable and she looked the way she'd always been, a bit wide at her hips, a bit frail between her eyes. We stood around her bed and slowly, one by one, we started to cry. She had this ritual every day. Put her candle dregs in a full jar of water and over time the water would lessen, the room would smell like argawood. Her house was mantled with lined scores from the shadows of her Venetians, parallel wrinkles across carpet floors and kitchen tiles. She didn't have an electric cooler. She had ceiling fans. She put on a cartoon version of programs I didn't know were cartoons before they were live action. She let us watch Star Wars. Her tiredness reminded me of chapel organs. She was always trying to talk about being skinny, but I never knew it was because she couldn't conversate about anything else in English. She sat next to this plant and I'd watch her for a while. She'd water the plant, dust the plant, touch the plant. She'd act with this certain way about it, like she wanted to become the plant, like maybe if she sat beside it long enough, she'd morph into it. Her father had a bad history of gambling on an island off of China, and she promised she'd never have anything to do with it. When she turned 30, she could only play mahjong to be in the same room as people who looked like her, who spoke like her, who spent lives running Chinese restaurants for the experimental or being housekeepers for empty double stories. She talked about these western cities like they were sea surface to tread water on top of. Her house became a comfortable underworld for the lonely woman. When she turned 40, she could only clean up and cook and entertain, and it couldn't pay children's school fees, so she married. Her husband had a bad history of gambling and, became, and came home late when all the dinner had been finished up by all the women. When she turned 50, she couldn't stop talking about being skinny. Deep sea ocean drowned in rice pots. She kept eating rice all she knew how to eat, her wide hips, her tired hands. Part two. 
The tip where the nail starts to be with our red polish, Madonna and Palm Sundays, a chandelier, be better than the ordinary, Charles Mingus and Revenge, a movie where the actor has died on the streets of West Hollywood. An office worker buys his last packet of cigarettes in Malibu. And that, again, was the whole title. A young boy, a beautiful celebrity, is watching Club MTV on his Toshiba. He rolls his head on his neck and tries to look at his nose. He's not on drugs yet, he might be in a few years and he might die at 28. The housekeeper's fallen asleep from the restaurant draped over the bed. She wears plain white Reeboks. The young celebrity takes them off her feet and puts them in his wardrobe to sell online. The next day he fires her. Every time he smokes a cigarette, he licks his upper lip. He makes videos of boys dancing in their t-shirts. He creates a perfume with a second grade cosmetic line. He tried to imitate the smell of his mama. He takes up a shop class. He meets his boyfriend there. They're with each other every Thursday. They're busy, they only drink straight edge. They always keep their coffee cups on the table. Not thirsty, but their hands needed something to do. And they wait till a song they like comes on before they leave the place. When he visits his mama at the village, she tells him, Sometimes you can't be brilliant, and when you're not, you still have to be kind to people. His best friend's life, whole life, is unpaid profit, vain revenue. Spends 8K on a video, but nobody comes to see it. They fall asleep in the restaurants they order from. The beautiful celebrity has a mother to call him every week and reminds him to drink and eat and to watch a film, maybe a Japanese cartoon. And those Japanese cartoons are always reminding you to drink and to eat. He forgets how to drink and eat when his best friend moves to Arizona. He's spending mornings learning to be nimble in bedrooms, learning to step off a mattress with ballerino toes. He's spending nights being a token, a beautiful young celebrity in the dark room. His new housekeeper now is crying on the phone with her old husband. The new housekeeper is spending nights being a cleaner, a wife, a mother, a grandmother recently. And she's doing what her mother did, what her sisters do, spend nights maintaining a legacy. The young celebrity sits on the other side of the bed from her while she cries. She apologizes in a language. Then she tells him about her husband in broken English. Her cheeks with wrinkles catch her tears. The old husband has told her he left her because she stopped being beautiful and she got too bossy and she never cooked. She was at all these big houses cleaning up after the undeserving man and so he sent her to a different country. All she said was, I stopped being beautiful she has an issue to take up with her hips now. She'd always been pinching at them. She does it now and fixes her hair behind her ear. The young celebrity blinks at her, his hands on his lap. The nightlights come through the white Venetians, a bright orange strip of sun steeps under the carpet. She says, don't be unkind to me, please. Thank you. If you enjoyed that session of the National Young Writers Festival, it happens every year on Labor Day weekend, so around September 27-28, I think it is, in Newcastle. For more information, go to their website, www.youngwritersfestival.org, and you'll be able to find everything you need to know about the festival itself, get tickets, find out about the artists, and we found it to be one of the most dynamic, inclusive and fun festivals we attended last year. We can't wait to be doing it again this year. And this year, we're even going to be setting up the National Young Writers Festival podcast feed, all of its very own. So keep an eye out for that as well. But in the meantime, 
If you want to keep hearing the sessions from the 2018 festival and there are some really great ones coming up, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to Rights for Festivals or go to www.rightsforwomen.com and that's the website where you'll find all of the Rights for Festivals episodes including the Feminist Writers Festival, Mudgy Writers Festival, Story Fest and of course the National Young Writers Festival and there will be many more to come throughout this year as well. Hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to like our Facebook page and follow along at Rights for Festivals and um, we'll hit you up again soon with another fantastic and playful episode from the National Young Writers Festival. This podcast episode was recorded, produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.